Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 178 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me for this discussion about Quentin Tarantino's 10th film are my co-host and best friend, Patrick. Sup? That's very Quentin Tarantino-esque of you. And uh, our co-host, Coles. Bonjour! That is unexpected. Uh, you're taking a page out of Aaron Hunley's uh, playbook there. Well, listeners, you'll notice that I said Quentin Tarantino's 10th film and not 9th. And that is because I personally do not subscribe to this idea that Kill Bill is only one movie, despite what the director himself says. But, hey, that's a conversation for another day. We are gathered here today to chat about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And honestly, I see no reason to delay. So let's just get right into it, fellas. We'll do that first by saying, spoiler warning, uh, I personally did go on a little bit of a Twitter rampage uh, over the last few days talking about how I did not like certain aspects of this film being given away uh, in the headlines to reviews and such. So I'm being very sensitive to spoilers for this movie. It was a unique experience for me to go into it and see it without knowing anything. I actually knew very little about the Manson murders in general as well. And I would hate for anyone to have an altered perspective going into this film. So if you haven't seen it, please go check it out in the theaters. It is worth your time, all two hours and 40 minutes of them. And uh, then come back and listen to this hopefully really great conversation about some of the themes that this movie gives us to chat about, which I think are pretty deep. So you've been warned. And with that said, we're going to jump into... Our one word takeaways, Kales. We saw this together. It was a great time. I really enjoyed that. I love that we get to do that. Uh, man, what, what do you think about it? What was your one word takeaway? My one word takeaway was celebration. It was a celebration of a past era in Hollywood, you know, before we were getting bombarded with just sequels and, you know, superhero films and just like unoriginal content, you know, a time where the aspect of filmmaking was held in a higher virtue, I think, than it is these days. You have a few directors who are keeping that same tradition going, but this is in the time before where, you know, you couldn't just really get away with a lot of like things you get away in film now. It's also a celebration of the um the gift for the gift that is a, a acting career. You know, the um the highs and lows, the trial and error, you know, the feeling that, you know, your time as a as a personality within a film is over, you know, the the doubt, the insecurity you know, the low self-esteem, but then there's also the triumph. There's also the, um, you know, we'll talk about it later with Sharon Tate with her scene, you know, watching herself on the screen. There's also the beauty of just being able to transform yourself into another person and character, you know, just from reading words on the page. It's a very uplifting experience. And also, you know, a little bit of um, retribution, given the ending of this film and the way that the Manson family um, characters were discussed and talked about. I'm kind of glad that they weren't the focal point because I think, honestly, for me, it would have ruined the aspect of the friendship between Leonardo and Brass Pitt's character and, and Sharon Tate being memorialized in a way instead of looked at as an infamous murder victim. I'm kind of glad that they went away from that path and made it into a, just a little bit of a fairy tale in Tarantino's eyes. Also, 
a film that he considers his memory piece, you know, just um, memories from back when he was a kid and first influenced by films. So it's just a celebration of all the great aspects of Hollywood and um, all of the past, like, you know, cinema treasures and shows that we've had, you know, back before. Awesome, man. Uh, what about you, Patrick? How did you come out of this one? You've, you might want to also tell us a little bit about your Tarantino history, because I know that you are not the biggest fan. Let me preface this by saying I have not seen Tarantino's entire filmography. I've seen Pulp Fiction, I've seen Jackie Brown, and I've seen Inglorious Bastards. So I'm definitely not what you would say a Tarantino fan, and for just personal reasons. I can appreciate his style. I can appreciate and completely respect his storytelling. And when I say that, I'm not just being facetious. I'm not saying that just say like, you know, instead of saying, like, that person's ugly, she's a great cook, that kind of thing. I'm trying to be very sincere when I say Tarantino is a fantastic writer-director. He knows what he wants to, to tell his stories about. He does it, and he does it in the Quentin Tarantino way. So there's consistency all over the map. However, I would say that for my money, this is not the kind of movie that I'm going to probably see twice. If it is, it will be without certain pieces of it, which we'll get into later. That being said, satisfaction was actually the word that I came up with. Originally, it was WTF, and I believe when I was talking to you offline, Aaron, after I'd come out of the theater, I was like, well, okay then. <laughs> and satisfaction really came about from what you had mentioned earlier, Aaron, that I went in blind. I had no idea what this movie was about, apart from these two people that were on the twilight of their careers as actors, what I knew at the time. And it felt like it was going to kind of be something in the same lane as Days and Confused, you know, the eve of, you know, something new, you know, we're at the end of 1969, we're into the 60s and, you know, Hollywood is changing. I had no idea, no idea this was going to be basically a redemption story for Sharon Tate and having to deal with the, the Manson family. Like when they kept saying Charlie, I was like, who's Charlie? What, what's going on here? I mean, I was oblivious to it. So I'm watching this movie and I'm going, what is happening here? There's this story. There's that story. There's all these stories. And I don't know really what's going. Oh, look, there's a cool guy. It looks like Bruce Lee. I love that part. And so I'm just kind of picking and choosing like, what do I like? And what do I not like? And how do I really figure this out? And so going in blind and then finding out after the fact, like reading articles about how this was basically a rewrite of history gave me a ton more satisfaction of what I just watched. And it really compelled me to want to see it again at some point. Um, I won't get, get to the theater to see it, obviously, but if it and when it probably makes it to our voodoo library, it will probably be one that I, I queue up when I have both the time and the ability to edit to be able to uh, to really experience this again. I also saw that there was a great satisfaction within the narrative that was more of that revenge story towards uh, for, you know for Sharon and the satisfaction given to this quote fairy tale ending. I mentioned to you, Aaron, when I when I came out that I should have known that it was going to be a happy ending because it started with Once Upon a Time. But it's kind of a double meaning there because we're used to those films that say, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West and other couple others that start with Once Upon a Time that don't necessarily end well. They just use that trope of Once Upon a Time to tell us that, hey, here's a story about this and that's all you know. So for me, satisfaction for myself I think for the the characters in the story, and I, I want to say a little bit for 
probably Quentin Tarantino, as he's kind of moving into the twilight of his career, this probably felt like a good, satisfying either penultimate or ultimate uh, movie for him to finish out his career on. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it or came out of it satisfied at the very least. Um, I was pretty sure you would once I saw it. I know beforehand we were actually you know, up in the air as far as whether you were going to join us on this episode because you just weren't sure based on what you knew of QT and you were going to wait and hear what I had to say about it. And I, I was pretty sure you could take it. And I knew that you might have a couple scenes where <laughs> they pushed your boundaries. So that doesn't surprise me. I couldn't exactly tell you and warn you about them, but uh, I knew that you'd be able to handle it. And I'm glad that. you didn't, by the way. I'm glad because as, as you mentioned in your message to me, they're both, one's not as significant as the other. Just know that the one that's significant is a little bit, and you said little bit in quotes, a little bit longer than the other. And mm. of course that was not at all what it was. But, right. But it was significant and I'm glad you didn't spoil that for me because that would have really kind of just cashed in my enjoyment of the movie. Agreed. You know, for me too, would have done it for me if somebody told me. Um, I do want to, just before I give my one more takeaway, drop this quick note. There is a podcast out there that is called You Must Remember This. I believe that's what it's called. And if you have not subscribed to this, you need to check it out. It is all about film history, the history of Hollywood and stories. There is an entire season of this podcast that is dedicated to this late 60s time period and specifically uh, these Manson murders and how they affected Hollywood. Um, it is really, really great stuff. I knew of it. I hadn't listened to that entire season. I think I'd started it and then stopped at some point. And so I was picking it back up again in the last several days after watching the movie. It's a great, 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 great companion piece, uh, historically speaking. So you must remember this. Check it out. Great show. Um, my one more takeaway, guys, is sentimental. It has been five days now since I saw the film, and it has lingered on my mind completely for all of them. I have not stopped thinking about it. I have not stopped feeling compelled to check out more history, read articles and other opinions. It's a pretty big deal for me when I do that. Typically, I don't read other reviews. I mean, I have to really want to hear other opinions, but this one, I wanted to know what other people were pulling out of it, and I have sought those out. And I think that the reason for this is mostly because not of the shocking moments of violence or the surprising twisting of history and the way that those are woven into this story, or even the enjoyable time I spent soaking in this Hollywood culture of the late 60s with impeccable production design as expected from Quentin Tarantino, but it's because of the relationship. It's that best friendship between Rick and Cliff and how much I connected with that. Um, what I was not expecting was for this movie to be so tender and sentimental. Those are not words that I expected to come out of this saying. And, and I think Tarantino knows that. He's smart. And so those stick out like a sore thumb, but they do that in a very pleasant way, not actually in the sore kind of way. Um, I laughed a ton, too. I mean, usually laugh in a Tarantino movie, but I think that the balance of the comedy in this one with the sentimentality is really, really well done. I'll point out a couple of specific examples later in our conversation. Uh, but some of my favorite scenes in this movie brought tears to my eyes. And 
when that happens to me in a Quentin Tarantino movie, I, I don't know if it ever has before. I thought back and I was trying to remember, like, has anything ever, like, moved me to tears, to legitimate feels like that? And I don't think it has. So something weird is going on, and I feel like that is my primary takeaway because it's got to be special if it's able to do that to me. Uh, so sentimental for me, tender, any word that kind of relates to the fact that this movie got me uh, in the field and it's it cares about its characters in a way that his movies usually don't. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you guys about is something that a fellow critic and I were talking about right before our screening. I don't know if you remember this conversation, Coles. You were there, um, but you were not directly involved in the conversation. Um, as we noticed, there were a ton of reserved seats uh, for press and VIPs in this movie. So when Kalesa and I go to these, usually there's like two or three rows of the theater that are blocked off with a white piece of paper and a you know tape to the chair that says reserved. The entire top section of this theater was blocked off for guests, VIPs, uh, and press, meaning that more press is coming out to this than typically does, and that there were a lot of people who wanted to see it. The only thing I can think of that even is similar to this, honestly, was like Star Wars. I saw more critics at the Star Wars movie a couple years ago, when whenever it was. I didn't even know these people existed. I thought, I no idea. Like It's like five times the amount of press in Seattle than I thought really was there, because they all just showed up in the Star Wars movie. So it was pretty big deal. It was an event, okay? And much like Blockbuster's used to be before there was a new Star Wars every year and multiple Marvel films in a year when people would be excited about going to a midnight showing, even even as recently as like The Dark Knight Rises. What makes QT films such a draw to this devoted audience? Like why is there such a passion for something like a Quentin Tarantino film? Why is it why do you think it's an event? This acts on two examples that, that came to my mind when you first brought up this question. You know, yeah, like you said, I wasn't a part of the conversation, but I was hearing it and I was liking what you guys were saying, you know, because it was just a general wonder. And it's like, wow, because the only other film screening that I've been to that was like this was maybe Rocket Man. And of course, there was the Elton John fan factor with that. I think with QT is that he's entered into the greater pop culture lexicon. Um, he gets name dropped in a lot of rap songs that I hear. Um, there's a lot of memes directed to him as far as involving his films, especially Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards. And also, I think it's because like any time a Tarantino film comes out, you know it's going to be something just like something that no one else is really doing or writing or directing in today's Hollywood. You know, um, like I said earlier before, you know we're hit kind of with a bombardment now of just a lot of remakes, reboots. Uh, sequels, uh, superhero films, and I'm thinking that there is still a pressing, pressing need for original films to be out there. And also, I feel that when Tarantino makes a film, you know it's, it's going to be a homage to a lot of styles and a lot of other films that we may have seen before, but it's going to be one unique thing that doesn't feel like a retread of the same subject matter. You know, um, we can have like a film like Django, which is just a, a revenge take on slavery. You know, we can have a film like Jackie Brown, which was adapted from a book, but it still feels very different from anything that's ever been made as far as involving like a sleight of hand heist. 
Or you'll have a film like Reservoir Dogs, which takes place about a heist, but you don't see the actual heist. You're just following the aftermath, and you're kind of getting these flashbacks into whatever. There are whole different takes on genres that we're already seeing before. And Tarantino has proven to be a very popular director. I mean, he has he has a lot of critics out there. Trust me, I know that for sure. But you will find a lot more people who tend to be a, a fans of his films or his writing or his like you know his directing style or even the crazy endings he has. He's very noticeable for that in the greater filmmaking world. So anytime Tarantino makes a film, and also you have to think about the years. There's he doesn't make film. He doesn't pump films year in, year out, year in and out. He takes his time and he waits for like you know for things to be well written, and then he decides to go ahead and do some whiff. And I can respect that. You know, um, if someone's going to take their time and take make me wait three or four years for a film, it's going to be quality. Hey, I got nothing but respect for that. And Tarantino keeps you waiting. He keeps your mouth watering for new products. It's not like you're going to see him every year. He's going to come out at certain points when he feels that his story is ready to be taken to the big screen. And I feel that Tarantino, he has like this kind of like not Super Bowl level, but kind of like, you know, just this um, this superstar element when it comes to his films premiering. There's a longevity, I think, that comes with Quentin Tarantino. Reservoir Dogs came out in 1992. So he's been around making movies for well over 20 years. And there are a lot of things about his filmmaking that have changed as a result of the culture that we live in, um, as a result of technology, as a result of just getting older. But there's also a consistency that exists in a lot of his movies. And Coles, you hit on a great point that he writes and directs refreshing stories. They might have source material attached to them at times, but it's almost as if he creates a what if type scenario with a lot of the stuff. And Glorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are two great examples of that. He thinks about history and he says, let's rewrite that. And let's add some fun to it. And I think the fact is he's just really talented. I know that sounds like a no-brainer or kind of like a just a throwaway. But the fact is you don't get a lot of talented writer-director combos. I love Christopher Nolan, but he doesn't write half the stuff that he directs. So you've got a guy like Quentin Tarantino who has longevity. He's a veteran. And he also has the ability to go behind the camera and also write the script. As someone who is trying to get better at filmmaking, I understand the gravity of what it means to write a really great script and also direct that. I mean, if he were to star in some of his movies, I think that would be like the the triple crown right there. But the truth is, Quentin Tarantino is incredibly talented. And the fact that he doesn't put out a movie every year creates a sense of anticipation. Oh, the next QT movie is coming out. What's it going to be? How crazy is it going to get? And... I think the other thing is that as a director, he's one of the few out there that is unapologetic about his talent. I think it was for Django Unchained. He got the was it the best best writer. I can't remember what, what it was. Maybe it was best. No, it wasn't best director. But he came out and or best adapted screenplay or original. It was best screenplay. I can't remember. But he came out and was just straight up sarcastically sincere about the fact that he was like, well, you know, they couldn't have done it without me. I basically wrote the whole thing, which is kind of true. A guy like that has a personality that you just kind of gravitate towards in terms of wondering what he's going to do next. He's a mystery. He's this kind of almost like a jokester, like like a puck or something like that, because he puts stuff into his movies that 
you know you're going to expect. But Aaron, as you said, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had those elements, but there was heart behind it. There was a tenderness behind it that you didn't expect. And so I think a lot of times what we see in Quentin Tarantino is that he is reinventing himself as he grows. And if he were to say this is his last movie, I would say that's great. What a great way to end. Unless he decides to do this R-rated Star Trek movie, which is kind of bizarre. But people would go out and see that. Why? Because it's Quentin Tarantino attaching himself to something that he's never attached himself to before, which is a franchise, which is a blockbuster. What's he going to do to this? And I think that more than anything is what people come to these movies to see is like, what's going to happen? There's a story and it's probably great and there's probably going to be a lot of laughter and there's probably going to be a lot of violence. But at the end of the day, people are going to be wondering what's going to happen. So there's a real sense of anticipation when you walk into a, a QT movie. Yeah, I think you guys have hit on everything. Maybe one addition I would throw out there, but um, scarcity of the films I think is huge. Just having a director, like you said, Kalesa takes his time. Ten movies in 27 years. And technically Kill Bill was filmed together and broken apart and released in two parts. That's why he calls it one movie. So nine films in 27 years. That's crazy. That is like hardly putting anything out. And so it does feel like this big special thing. It's like, oh my gosh, what has he been spending all his time in? Because we equate time spent on something to generally, it's going to make it better. Um, unless there's lots and lots of reports out there about how a movie's been pushed back and encountered problems during its production phases, in which case we would see it as a negative. But generally speaking with QT, we're thinking, man, he's taking his time. So when he does finally put this out in front of our eyes, we know it's going to be something that is worth seeing. And it, it, it is almost always something fresh and something unique and something that we're not used to uh, in the modern day film landscape. And it doesn't mean that he's the only one doing this, but he has been doing it for so long. He's earned himself a certain level of respect. You know, when you do it like this for a while, a la a Christopher Nolan, you're going to start to gain followers that, transcend the casual moviegoer into bigger fandoms. Or, I'm sorry, that transcend the more cinephile type of moviegoer into a, a broader fandom. And Nolan's going to get people who watched him because of Batman coming out to see something like Dunkirk, which is a complete twist and changing up of the war film. And so those, these guys have just elevated themselves to these this iconic status and i think that that's part of what it is is we just want to see what that is and, and i gotta tell you it was special to me just it felt different walking out of that theater i remembered my 70 millimeter roadshow viewing of the hateful eight however many years ago three or four years ago when his last film was same thing i felt like i had seen cinema and and it sounds so hoity-toity and like Stuff and Coles was you were talking about this, but it feels so different than the movies that we consume on a weekly basis because so many of them are cookie cutter or following some sort of formula that we can pick up on pretty easily. So I think the one other thing is star power that maybe not has been mentioned is Quentin Tarantino brings the stars to the screen. Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are two of probably the last maybe three or four great movie stars that we have in this generation. I'd put Tom Cruise up there, and I'd say 
kind of right there on that cusp is probably George Clooney. Maybe Denzel as well could be in that pantheon. But these guys are like, they're the best, right? And they have that aura about them. And when you bring those kind of actors into your picture, you're going to put butts in seats. Like it's going to be that kind of an event. It's going to be special. When you hear Leonardo DiCaprio is working with Brad Pitt for the first time. I mean, to me, that's like, oh my gosh, as a cinephile, my, my mind is blown. Like I need to see these people working together. So I think all that stuff uh, goes into it. Uh, and it was just, it was awesome for me. It was an awesome experience and uh, I would love to get more like that, but I guess that's part of the thing, right? Is that scarcity. So if you can start getting more like that, then it's not as cool because you're getting more like that. Well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is essentially an alternate history with fictional characters um, intertwined together. Given what we know of Tarantino's filmography going into this, I'm curious how you guys approached it. And were you expecting the Manson murders to be handled differently? If so, how? And then what do you think of the way that Quentin treated the entire actual history of Sharon Tate and the others who were murdered at Polanski's home uh, in this real life event. Do you think he was respectful? Uh, do you think it was handled well? Uh, do you think he should have done it differently? Do you think he should have left it out completely as some critics have said? Kales, I'll let you go first. This is the first Q um, QT film that I didn't really even know what to expect when I first came into it. I mean, I had seen the trailers, but I still wasn't, really sure what the main focus of the film was going to be like i had a feeling it was going to be focused on will rick dalton and maybe cliff Booth was going to be kind of like just a side character that kind of like comes in and out in certain in certain parts but then you see images of the mass fans like well how much of a impact are they going to have in this film i felt that the way qt hound the story was um was great it was um way above my expectations um it's a slow burn film it kind of remind me in the way of like how jackie brown was um the way that they um, took time to flesh out each of the characters, get to know their nuances, their personality, their benefits, their flaws, you know, their way of going going about things. You know, so we follow Rick Dalton and we're following this guy who who fears that he's been a has-been and he's looking to try to find a way to fit into this new Hollywood that's changing right in front of his eyes. And we see his stuntman. And I like that um, Quentin Tarantino wrote another character of his because if you remember his other film, Death Proof, there was a guy named Stuntman Mike, uh, but he paid a little tribute to the stunt to stunt people in this film. And I found that there was an early scene telling about the plight of stuntmen where we see Rick. We go from Rick's house up in the Hollywood Hills, right, living right next to Rowan Pulaski, the director of Rosemary's Baby. And then we see Cliff go to his home near where the drive-in theater is, right into this little like um trailer and everything. You see kind of how messy, kind of how strong about things are. And I felt that that, in a way, was speaking to um, how underappreciated stuntmen are still are in Hollywood and how we need to have respect for these guys. As far as the Manson family, the way that that was handled, I I like the way it was handled. I mean, he could have went in many directions with this story. I mean, he could have just did a straight, um, hey, let's focus, let's follow these like these followers and let's figure out like why they want to um, murder people and why they have this ideology and why they feel that they need to do this and why do they live in such a cultish way like 
it would have been a very interesting story to follow them, but then it would have taken away from Leonardo and Brad Pitt's friendship. It would have taken away from seeing Sharon Tate as someone as somebody other than an infamous murder victim. Um, it would have felt like QT was kind of going in the same path as other directors have been, because we've seen plenty of docu- documentaries, plenty of true crime stories, plenty of films that focus on Manson and the family. Um, so I feel that he did a very good job with kind of keeping them in the background, having them linger in the background. Like they're kind of like a dark cloud that you see in the distance, but it's not there yet. It's not coming, but you know it's coming, and you don't know exactly what kind of effect it's going to have on the state of things. But the ending of it, you know, with his his brand of alternate history revenge, it was very, very great, very well handled. I love the way he um, kind of connected all the diverging storylines together. I didn't know how everything was going to kind of collide in the end, but it collided in a way that I felt was a great manner for the pacing of the film. So I loved it. I felt that he did right by the Manson family. I felt he did right by Sharon Tay and her depiction. I felt he did right with showing the idea of Hollywood being an actor, you know, going through the trials of figuring out like what your career is going to be in a few years from now. I loved all of it. I was reminded of a play turned movie called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or dead. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Oh yeah. Don't we have to read it in high school? I think we did. And then we got to watch the movie, which was a lot of fun. The movie was great. Yeah. I want to own it at some point. I, I kept thinking about this as I was thinking about your question. And really this is what it felt like. It felt like we have this story of Rick and Cliff. This is their story. And I, I would go on further to say this is Rick then Cliff's story because Rick is your main protagonist. Cliff is his sidekick, his stuntman. And each of them have their own stories going on and they converge here and there for obvious reasons. And then there's Sharon Tate, who has been criticized as being sort of the red herring of this movie. And I can see that. I can see how some critics might look at this movie and say, well, what's going on? You've got these, you've got these converging stories that sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't, all leading up to this one moment. And what I think more is that this is an approach like was done in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is, if I didn't explain it before, I apologize. In the story of Hamlet, you have these two characters who are minor characters this movie, the story, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, tell the whole story of Hamlet from their perspective. And so you only see pockets of the actual story of Hamlet when they're actually in the scene. So it's kind of like if the hyenas told the story of the Lion King? Exactly, yeah. So Or any minor character telling the story that you're the most familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever. The water buffalo? Yeah, we're not going to use like so Timon and Pumbaa? Ooh, Timon and Pumbaa. Thank you. Those would be the actual, those would probably be the best example. That actually would be because there's a lot of comedy. Anyway, because sorry. What, because, because what happens here is if you're going to tell a story that involves the Manson family and Sharon Tate's alleged murder, not alleged, it was murder, but in this case, the, you know what I'm saying. If you're going to retell that story and actually change history, if you're a director and a writer, you're going to center around the Manson family and Sharon Tate. In this story, they were byproducts. We saw Sharon Tate at small moments here and there. We got introduced to the Manson family in a very subtle way. Again, naive patch over here thinking, who's Charlie? That's going to be fun to find out who Charlie is. And we, you know, we may or may not make that connection. 
I like that kind of storytelling because what what it does is it allows Quentin Tarantino to play in that real life story to obviously manipulate it for his own personal gain and for cinematic gain, but to also focus on what I think is his bread and butter, which is original stories centered around original characters. He's not making a Sharon Tate biopic. This is not his M.O. Somebody else could probably do that. And when you look at the way this movie is structured, thinking about it from that perspective, that these are two guys living in a world where the Manson family murders were a big part of that period, but they weren't all of that. Hollywood was changing, and they were trying to change with it. And I think Quentin Tarantino was trying to allow for that to become the focal point with a great climactic ending that was stirred by this background narrative with the Manson family. There was a there was a comment about um, not letting Margot Robbie talk as much as Sharon Tate, and somebody rebuffed that and said, you know what, if I'm going to put Sharon Tate as a character in a movie and not focus so much on her, I would rather let Margot Robbie act without words, use her facial expressions, talk as little as possible, because you're going to have to take a lot of care with that person. I mean, Sharon Tate and what she would eventually happen to her was tragic. So if you're going to use her in a minor role or as a catalyst to bring about this giant big conclusion, to me, I'm going to probably not put, I'm going to probably put as few words in her mouth as possible and let the actress portray her in a way that she interprets it without creating a ton of dialogue. And for Quentin Tarantino, who's a master dialogue person, I wouldn't, I'm not saying I wouldn't trust him to do that, but I don't know that his writing style would elicit something as, as, as tender or as, as gentle as her and to have her write. So overall, I think that the reverse approach that he took here was very effective to enhance his, his style and to let him know this is a QT film, but to also remind us of what was going on in Hollywood and that this was something that happened. And even though he wrote, wrote history, it's still something that's pretty tragic. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, is that we got to remember, Quentin Tarantino lived through this period of history. He was alive. This was something very real that he witnessed. Not, you know, the you know what I'm saying. Like, he witnessed the time period and, and the events, the reactions that came after this occurred. I think, in a way, this almost is like a catharsis it feels like it to me for him because of what you guys said putting all of the manson stuff in the background i certainly wasn't expecting that it's one of the big reasons i think that for a second viewing of this film many people are going to find it a lot better are going to be a lot more positive on it there's a jarring nature to going into it expecting a certain thing to happen because it's Quentin Tarantino and you know he's dealing with this certain event in history and your expectation for what might occur and then you have to twist and, and, and get used to that slow not actually dealing with the Mansons very much and they're not being the primary point of the story you know Coles saw it twice and I know it got better for him on the second viewing as many folks have told me and I, I haven't stopped thinking about it so I expect it to be that way for me as well and you know, these real events were going on seemingly unbeknownst to those in Hollywood. And I, and I love that he really puts the spotlight on that. 
The Manson cult is happening right there while real actors are going to work every day and dealing with the struggles that they're dealing with. The changing in Hollywood. When are they going to find work? These things are happening simultaneously and we as an audience can relate to that. Like these things happen in the world every day, right? You may or may not live somewhere where a major mass shooting has occurred. You're going about your day as normal, but that thing is being planned or be or happening in the background. And looking at it from that perspective is really interesting. Um, I think the ending specifically is brilliant, not just because of the shock factor and the simultaneously it's an awesome audience film experience because i i don't know if the you guys' viewings with public viewers went like our press screening but i mean it's a it's a shout out loud collective oh my god moment when the ending twists and cliff ends up killing the intruders right and then when rick comes out with the flamethrower i mean it is an like fist pumping Everybody reacting viscerally to that moment. It's the violence that you expect from a Tarantino film, but there's a purpose to it for the first time. It's Tarantino saving Sharon Tate and her baby and the victims of the Manson murders that night. It's him saying, I I want them to still continue to live on and not as memories, as victims, but as people who just went through the acting process, who were happy and had lives and went to parties at the Playboy Mansion, you know, and went shopping and had dinner at the El Coyote just with friends to hang out and who danced around the house all the time. It's like saying, like, this is a person's life that was taken from us far too soon. But all that we think about is the fact that she was murdered by Charles Manson or the cult. Yeah, I felt they did. I felt Tarantino did a very, very great job in like showing Sharon Tate doing these mundane things, such as like you know going to get a book or just driving around, you know, even helping a hitchhiker. It's just like things that you know make her more than what she's probably known as as being the most famous of the Manson family murder victim. You know, it kind of takes the narrative back away from that and be like, hey. Hey guys, you know, Sharon Tate was just like us too. I mean, maybe, yeah, I mean, not like us because she's a famous Hollywood actress, you know, and it has plenty of fame and all that, but no, I mean, she did things that we did too. She's not just someone who was, um, killed and had her baby killed. She was somebody. She was somebody who, who lived her life as the way she wanted to. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I love that it's real heroes that save the day, right? I mean, they randomly stumble into the wrong house. And it happens to be a stuntman. And it happens to be an actor who has a flamethrower prop at home. These everyday people, seemingly, who are the next-door neighbors to this, like, certain level of wealth and renown in Hollywood, save the day. And I, I just thought that was really cool. Um, I thought that the violence made perfect sense here. Sometimes in Tarantino movies, that can be questionable, um, exploitation is the word that's thrown around. I actually would largely fight against anyone who tried to call this exploitative in any way because I think it is absolutely the opposite of that. The violent murders that took place, they're known for how brutal they were. So to take that same level of brutality and violence and then turn it back on the attackers, 
I think was an incredible, uh, brilliant move. And it makes me say, you know, like, why shouldn't the fictional counterparts of the Manson murders get the same treatment that they gave to others? So I want to push back a little bit on that because I think that there's a, there's a point you get to, particularly with Tarantino's violence that goes beyond the, to me, there's a, there's a three level effect. There's the, oh my gosh, which is your typical Hollywood violence. And you see this in probably 80 to 90% of your movies that have action sequences, blood, whatever. And then there's the, the shock portion. And I'll, I'll use this as an example. When Cliff takes Red's face and starts pounding it against the, the telephone, you're like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. And then, so you're like, whoa, okay. Now at that point, you're thinking, okay, the Hollywood, the Hollywood director is going to say, cut, okay, we've got that shot. Well, then you get ratcheted up a level and he takes her face and puts it up against the, and does the same thing against the mantle. Not once, not twice, but three times. And then again on the floor. So there's a, there's a level you get to where it becomes, it becomes shock and you feel the, the visceralness, which I would agree, Aaron. I mean, if you're going to, this is a revenge tale to some extent. It's not. It's not no, a revenge. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think no, it's a revenge tale at all. I think it is because if you have, if you're going to depict the murders in the way that he does, by your own admission, you're like, if these are the way the murders happened in real life, then why not show them towards the the people that did them in this fictional world? You're essentially saying, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let's go ahead and pay it back equally as brutally to the folks that did this in this fictional tale. I'm not saying I have a problem with it. I'm saying that what Quentin Tarantino would do is after that, for, for my money, banging the to to bash a woman's face, bash a person's face into a telephone like three or four times and have have them fall. To me, that's brutal enough. But then it becomes almost celebratory. Like let she's not. I'm not done yet. Let me go ahead and bash her face in on the mantle. And then I'm not done yet. Let's do it again. So at some point, it becomes like violent. And then shock, and then you're getting this awkward laugh coming from some of your some of your audience members, and that for me personally is where I get the discomfort level like to a to an extreme because at some point I get how violent it was, but I don't need the exclamation point three or four times to tell me it really did happen this way. It was really this violent. I'm, I, I get it. It's like you're kind of forcing it down my throat at that point. Again, that's 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 from a personal standpoint. Other people may not feel that way, but to say that this is not a revenge tale, I think it is. I think it's QT's way of saying, I'm going to pay this back in my hyperviolence because this is how bad she got it and those people got it. Yeah, um, I kind of have to like um, piggyback on what Patrick said, you know, because um, my audience um, reactions to the ending were kind of just the way that Patrick described it. You know, you kind of had the awkward laughs, but then you got a whole lot of like, yes, go give it to him, you know, and. I have to admit, I was one of those people who was saying giving it to him and stuff like that, just being very excited. I feel that a lot of people felt in the way that Tarantino was kind of saying, okay, so you know about the real massive family murders, you know how brutal they were, you know, and the way that, and what the things that they did to Sharon Tate, which made me think about the way that Susie Atkins got it, you know, with her revenge where she gets bit by a dog, she gets hit in the face with a can, and then she ends up going into a pool, she gets burnt to a crisp by a flamethrower, I'm guess I'm thinking that had to been like some really like Tarantino was like okay so she was the one who did like the worst you know she had the worst atrocities of this kid so let me like 
put all of this like terrible, terrible stuff on her to make her feel the pain that she deflected out on Sharon Tate and the other unsuspecting victims. So in a way, in a sense, I do feel that it is, yes, Tarantino's way of sneaking his like, you know, his alternate history revenge methods into another film. But in a way, it just feels like it feels just it doesn't feel like uh, straight, straight revenge from like troubling aspects. It feels like just it feels like justice. It feels like this is what everybody in the world would want to happen to these people if it was flipped the other way around in real life. So this is what I would say is I would agree with that, Kales, because if I had gone into this movie knowing full well the the details of this in my head and probably in my heart, I'd be like, yeah, get them, do it, keep going. And I would become one of those celebratory people. So I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that I think the motive is there. And that's where I'm kind of disagreeing is I, I don't think Quentin Tarantino is unaware of what he's doing when he choreographed this whole sequence is that there is a there's a bit of I'm mad. I want I want my own personal revenge, but I'm going to do it in a way that's going to make sense to what's happening here. OK, so, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, that's what I said was exactly that, that what you're just describing that it is intentionally done in order to pay back the murders in the same violent way in which they occurred and pay that on to those who committed these acts. Uh, like you said, Coles, Susie specifically is noted as being gleeful and giddy during these murders. She was sentenced to life in prison. She was actually sentenced to death and ended up getting it converted to a life in prison and i think she died in like 2009 or something in prison um so for her to get that extra is absolutely intentional for sure so i think maybe i just wasn't as distinctive in the words what i meant is it's not a revenge tale in the sense of like the narrative of the the characters in the movie are not out for revenge because the characters don't have anything to be out for revenge for i get that's what i meant the characters are sitting at home doing nothing and they're like, dude, why are you here? Uh, no, you're not going to kill me. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you know, um, that's more what I meant. But you're right. You're right in the sense that it is definitely Tarantino getting revenge, paying back the murders for all of us, for the world. And as a as a writer, that's what you do. Like when you write books, I remember I think it was A Knight's Tale where Chaucer was talking about these two guys that were his uh, – his, he got into a, a big deal with uh, about gambling with him, and he says, "I'm going to write you tragically into my next my next work." This is what writers and creators have the power to do: to take real life aspects and either real life people give them new names and then put them in books or movies and torture them or give them accolades or whatever. And I think that's the magic of of storytelling: is that you can retell this story to suit your own personal satisfaction or your audiences. And so for that, I give Tarantino full credit. Yeah. And I think where I was going initially with that was saying it's not exploitative, which is treating people unfairly in order to make your point. And I don't feel that there's anything unfair about the way the Mansons and, or the Manson and, and, and his followers are treated in this film personally. Um, so I, I guess that's more probably where I was going initially with that. And then last thing on that, though, just because we were talking about the ending, Brandy has to be the MVP. And by MVP, I mean the most valuable pet. Um, if I had a dog, I would be feeding my dog uh, good food for mean dogs because 
that dog is amazing. And I loved her scenes throughout the film and her relationship with Cliff as a pet owner and a pet lover. That just was an extra layer I wasn't expecting in this movie that really kind of warmed my heart, even though it resulted in some uber violence itself. So Patrick, you're a dog guy. I know you've got dogs. What did you think about Brandy? Oh, I was, I'm in love with her. I, 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 you know, she's just, she's beautiful. First of all, I mean, she is a just well-groomed pit bull and the scene that I fell in love with was the initial one where we we see her with him. He's gone back to the trailer and he spends what a good almost in movie time, probably 10 or 15 minutes making his macaroni and cheese. He's put her food in the dog bowl and he's got her so well trained that she's willing to just sit there while he finishes making his mac and cheese, getting himself a beer, sitting down in front of the television and then makes his little noise, and then she can go get her food. I just think that speaks volumes to their relationship of man's best friend. I mean, she respects him. She loves him. And she's just fantastic. I just think she's a fantastic dog. All right. Well, let's get into the main relationship here that this film is really all about. Um, It's set in this time where the Manson uh, cult exists and these things are going on, but it's really about Rick and Cliff um, and probably Quentin Tarantino in many ways. So we have these two characters and they are coping with a changing world and finding their new place in it. Do you think that Tarantino is referencing himself in his career here, um, especially if he's closing in on retirement as he's hinted at? Um, he's always said, that he'd retire after 10 films, and so he's close. Um, and did you guys feel like there's anything the audience should be learning from Rick and Cliff's journey? As far as Tarantino's, um, him referencing the, the way his life is going at the moment as far as being in film and just having one more film after this, I kind of feel yes, in a way it does. Um, he's always been a vocal critic about films being shot in digital. Now he will not go to digital at all. He'll stay at 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter, as you saw for the hateful eight and the Rosa shows. So I feel that he's not exactly like saying he's distasteful of Hollywood these days. I'm pretty sure he likes a lot of the new films that still come out and everything, but it doesn't feel as um, glamorous or as, um, you know, as, risk takey as it was back in the day as the way he's showing it once upon a time in hollywood you know you get these intercuts of like different movies and different films yeah they all look the same but there's some special kind of charm to these shows you know or it's either the way that they don't take themselves too seriously or it's the way that leonardo DiCaprio's his characters the way that they're heavies you know they have these big personalities and they're just there just to get beat up or you know even tv shows like the fbi or bounty law you know it kind of put me into the mind of shows that like my grandparents would watch when they would come back on tv land for reruns and everything i feel that this is just a call for him just wanting to live in the past again um and to just remember a time when things were like we've always talked about when things were simpler you know before the massive family murders when hollywood was on the cups of changing to this new diaphragm of the counterculture movement and hippieism and you know films like bonnie and clyde and guess who's coming to dinner kind of shook up the whole mold of what hollywood was I feel that he just wants to take special care of showing that era to new filmgoers like us, you know, people who may not have been aware of the history, who may need to know this history to have a greater appreciation of what cinema is. 
I feel that he made this film just for people to know, like, hey, cinema's awesome, and it's a great art form, and just look at the great things it can do, and just look at through the, the peaks and valleys of it as well. So it's kind of just a love letter to the Hollywood industry in a way, and to his childhood, I feel that. He said that he could compare this film to um, Roma from last year, you know, how um, the director for that, you know, took elements from his childhood, just made a film about that. He took elements from his childhood and the films that he loves and just put it all into this one condensed bowl of um, movie magic. Uh, and the other question you had as far as wh- – um, what was your other question? Just did you th- did you learn anything from like Rick and Cliff's journey? Um, I wouldn't say I learned anything. I just appreciated the way that the relationship was shown. It's kind of like a bromance, like a really, really strong bromance. Um, the thing that I want to flesh out about their relationship is just the dedication they had to each other. I mean, Rick goes into set up for a show. He's telling Cliff, hey, um, you know, I think the wind like blew down like my TV tower. My TV won't come on. Like, can you go over there and fix it? And Rick and Cliff just goes over there and just be like, hey, I'll go ahead and do it. Or when, um, you find out that Rick can't drive himself around anymore because he got too many um, um, DUIs or tickets and whatsoever. And Cliff just, he's like, hey, I'll drive you around. I'll pick you up. Hey, do you need me to come and get you at this time? Do you need me to, like, it's, that's that's a true friendship. It was beautiful to watch. Um, I love that. And also, whenever Rick would go, whenever Rick went to the other side of the continent to do the Italian films, Cliff went there with him for the whole six months, took six months out of his life to go over there and be with there with his friend. It's beautiful. I I loved it. Like, it didn't really bring me to tears, but it was very emotional because, you know, I have a couple of friends who are like that. And, you know, just seeing that bond and seeing like two men do that and not have them being at each other's heads throughout the whole film or, you know, a moment where like they have this big argument, they blow up and they don't talk to each other. Cause you see that in a lot of buddy comedy films, especially action ones. I just love how they had just a straight relationship. Like they were straight with each other. They loved each other. They supported each other. They were their big fans of each other's um, respective talent. It was a great showing, and I didn't expect it for Tarantino to even, like, write something like that, you know, because, like, I guess the, the way you compare it is, like, look at Pulp Fiction and Vincent Vega and Julie and Jules' relationship. It's not as close as it is. You can tell that there's a business kind of guard between the guys. It's like, hey, we're only talking, conversing with each other because, hey, we, we're hitmen and we just have a job to do together, but... Rick and Cliff are doing this because, hey, we came into this business together. We've been with each other all these years. I know your flaws. You know my flaws. I know your I know your benefits. I know you know my benefits. It's it's great to see these guys have an organic friendship. Yeah, to answer your first question, Aaron, I think that Quentin Tarantino is looking at this movie and the way he's telling the story as a way to remind us as an audience, like, current audience and young filmmakers what history was like where filmmaking came from last year we got a chance to cover uh, kurosawa's seven samurai and i think both of us kind of came to the conclusion that it is a classic and it needs to be experienced by anyone who wants to appreciate filmmaking at the same time it's not one that i'm going to pop in every year and spend three and a half hours of my life just enjoying because there's a lot about it that's still kind of out of date. I don't catch myself wanting to watch a lot of these older movies that, well, the, the, the Westerns at least just cause I'm not a Western guy by default. But I think that what Quentin Tarantino shows us is that 1969 in particular with 
all of its songs. I think he put every song from 1969 in this movie. And the the busyness, the 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 quote noise of Hollywood is kind of beautiful chaos. And I think he wanted to paint that picture for us as an audience to say Hollywood was different than it is now. It wasn't necessarily better or worse. It was different. And these are my roots. This is where I, I come from. And I'd like to believe that he would paint this picture for us to at least capture a little bit of where he's coming from in terms of this filmmaking, like why he does what he does. I don't think it's a biography necessarily, but I, I you know, writers write what they know. And if this is what he knows, then it makes perfect sense for him to put as much time and energy visually and uh, from from a screenwriting standpoint, from a directorial standpoint, into a movie like this. And when you have two characters like uh, like Rick and Cliff, you you would expect one thing, but you're actually getting another. As you mentioned, Cliff, they respect each other. Cliff looks at Rick, and he's not envious of the fact that, at least I don't see it, of the fact that he has this big house. There's this great juxtaposition where he drops he drops him off in his nice Cadillac or whatever it is. And then he gets into his rinky dink car, goes back to his mobile home behind the drive-in and he's completely content. He's not complaining. He's not throwing things. He's not like, man, I wish I had the life that, that he did. A lot of that probably has to do with history that we sort of read into, but you have an actor and you have a stunt man and it's almost like having a shadow next to you. They follow each other. And while well, Cliff would say Rick's his boss. I don't think that they feel that way about each other. In fact, there's this great moment when I think it's uh, when when they watch the FBI episode. I laughed probably the hardest I've laughed in that movie at that at that scene because to me, Aaron, that's me and you. We are just because we're just cutting up and we're. You know, it would be like if you saw me on a television show or if I saw you, we'd just be making comments left and right about this kind of stuff because of the the familiarity and ridiculousness and all these things. And in that moment, in that scene, we see the comfort level get really uh, get get really personal. That to me is what a good friendship is. It's the ability to say, hey, I need to crash at your house tonight. Um, I'm, I've been drinking too much or asking somebody, hey, my my episode's coming on. Do you want to watch? And you know, absolutely. I got a six pack in the car. Let's get a pizza. I love the loyalty that they both have towards each other. I love the respect that they have towards each other. And to me, I think real friendship lives in those types of things where you're not looking at the other person's life and saying, man, I wish I had that. But you're looking at the other person's life and you're saying, I'm glad I have you. And I think that's the way they both felt about each other. At least that was my interpretation. Yeah, I, I would agree wholeheartedly with all of what you've said about Cliff and Rick, both of you. I, I mean, this relationship for me makes the movie, and it is more than anything what I've lingered on these last five days because it's their story. And thinking back on how it was told and how it started, how it's slowly revealed and where the two of them end up, I mean, my... My goodness, I probably had two or three connecting points within their relationship alone. One of them is the scene you mentioned, Patrick, actually, where they sit down and they just have that time re-watching that episode and talking about, like, this is where I did this, and oh, man, do you remember when you made that, that shot? And, like, it's, it is, it is 
phenomenal to see them do that. And another one is Rick's goodbye to Cliff at the end when he's like, I'm coming to the hospital. Where are you going? And Cliff's like, no, man, like, I'm good. Like, I'm good. You got a wife now. Like, you stay or whatever. And he just says, you're a good friend, Cliff. And I, I broke down. Like, I cheered up in that moment because it was like, dude, your best friend just saved your life. And you love this man and you're concerned about him. And, and your wife is fine, but she's new. <laughs> and this guy's been with you forever. And there is a real true love there that goes deeper than something that is a working relationship. Um, it's deeper than a surface level acquaintanceship in Hollywood where people may just know each other and hang out occasionally. And, and it's really special. Um, I love that. And I think the way that Tarantino shows us, it was just super special. And, you know, on top of that, you have these two characters being portrayed by, my goodness, Leo DiNardo, Leo DiNardo, Leo, no, no, blah, 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 Leonardo DiCaprio, there we go, and Brad Pitt, right? So, I mean, the acting is as good as it's going to get with portraying the two different characters. I love that one of the things that happens with Rick is he, he has this stutter, I don't know, you, you know, when he gets nervous, he's got this like lispiness to him. If you, if you notice, it is never called out in the movie. Cliff never brings attention to it. Nobody really ever like calls him out on it. It's just kind of like a, a behind the scenes part of his character. And I, and I loved that. It made me think about how real both of these men are without their movie career camera on them, without Clint, Cliff, without Cliff being in front of the camera doing stunts, he's the guy up there fixing the antenna, drinking a beer, smoking a cigarette, right? Getting a good look at the pretty lady in the window next door and reminiscing. It's Rick, you know, stuttering through and struggling through, you know, problems in his everyday life. Uh, some of those interactions between them were just awesome. And I think part of what I love about their relationship as well and what I thought was really brilliant from Tarantino here is that he gives us a character that is good. Like I couldn't find flaws. He's not Cliff is not an anti-hero. Cliff is a hero. Cliff is a good person. Now, we get a fun little jokiness about the fact that people think he killed his wife. There's a rumor that he killed his wife, but I think that it plays into this idea that all we see about Cliff is integrity all the way through the film. When his boss says, I need you to go fix my antenna, and he passes by Pussycat on the side of the street for like the second or third time, and she tries to talk him into getting a ride, he very clearly is enticed, and he says, nope, I gotta go that way. Why? Because he has a job to do. And he goes and he does his job. When she comes on to him in the car, I thought for sure, I was like, oh, here we go. This is going to be, you know, here's going to be our sex scene or, or something. He tells her no. He stops her. He gets to the ranch. He goes to check on the old man. He is absolutely dead set, no matter what, on making sure that old man is okay. And I just thought, like, it's amazing to me how how great of a character he was, like how respectful how caring, like you mentioned, Patrick, go, he, he just goes to Italy. All right, man, if that's where your career is going to take you, then that's where we're going. I don't have a say in it, 
because I'm just here for the ride, but I care enough about this relationship that I'm going to continue to be with you. Um, and I thought all of those things just made it like super special. And then on the Tarantino thing, the production design for me is like off the charts. It usually is in Tarantino's movie, but if anybody's going to capture 1969 Hollywood, I love what he has given us. The details in this picture, the Easter eggs, they are so deep. There are so many layers. Guys, I don't know how, how much you've read, but if you start reading into articles, it's kind of like reading into a Marvel film and finding out like back in, you know, phase one, there were all these little seeds planted for what's going to happen in, you know, in game, you know, 10 years of movies later. It's that type of stuff in the details. One specifically that really kind of blew me away. I listened to an interview with QT recently. There's a scene with Sharon Tate right before she enters the El Coyote, which is what is rumored to have been her last meal uh, before she's murdered on that night. And she briefly stops and she notices that an adult theater down the street is having a movie premiere. Weird thing to be in this movie, right? Like, why would you just randomly put that there? That theater that she is referencing is actually now the New Beverly Theater, which is where Quentin Tarantino programs his special presentation series. Come to find out, it did used to be an adult theater, and Tarantino actually used to work at the adult theater when he was younger. The name of the adult theater was the Pussycat, which just so happens to be the nickname of one of the Manson girls. And you start to see, like, how much goes into everything to like one throwaway line and maybe a two second shot in this film. But there's like so much meaning and so much personal just specificity going into what that is, is happening there. I just, I love that stuff. And I think it really elevates a movie into what we, you know, like to call cinema. It makes something special. It makes it deeper. Uh, and, and when you can, Spend time learning those things. I think it makes rewatches even more uh, enriching as well. Well, one thing that I wanted to uh, talk about was Rick's experience on the set of Lancer um, with this actress, or I guess I shouldn't call her an actress. I should call her an actor because that is what she refers to herself as. Um, we know her as Trudy. At least that's what's on the back of her chair. She's portrayed by a young lady named Julia Butters. That's the actress's name. And he has certain experiences with her on the set of making this film. And I just wondered if anything stuck out to you guys about that, because for me, my almost connecting point, my runner up connecting point was him reading his book and sitting next to her. And this moment where she is kind of explaining to him about the dedication of real actors. And he goes and starts to, break down as he finally starts describing the book that he's reading to her, this old Western paperback and relating it to his life and the way that she ends up comforting him and telling him is okay. And he's crying. I, I just got really emotional during this whole sequence. And I thought it was super touching um, and a really great way to kind of juxtapose like the new Hollywood that was, coming in at the time, um, these young child actresses who's completely dedicated to a craft in a way that he doesn't necessarily ever remember even having been. 
and yet he's the quote-unquote movie star. And at the same time, she has this incredible amount of respect for him. Um, and I just, I loved, loved, loved that scene so much. Yes, she nailed it. She was perfect. Um, I loved, um, I loved everything she did. Like, the way that, like, you know, she used her facial expressions. You know, she kind of had kind of a spunky look sometimes, especially when she's like, I don't like it when people give me pet names. That made me erupt right there. I was like, yes, this, this little girl is sure of herself. And like, she's only eight years old. And it's like, Rick. You know, he's reading this book about this guy who just kind of this old cowboy who just doesn't have it anymore. And it's like for him, he's not mad that he's he's not mad or he's feeling like, wow, like this little girl, like she's like killing me. But it's like he sees this little girl starting off in the same career choice that he that he's doing. But she's like so young and it's like he's seen so much and he's experienced so many, so many things. It like kind of brings it to home. Like, yeah, like things are changing, man, you know. I mean, do I even have a place when, you know, there's like uh, a girl like this, like a little child like this is only eight who's getting her start. Like, you know, do I still have a way to make an impact like what she's going to potentially do? I mean, but it's great. She was there for support. She looks up to him. She, Like you said, Aaron, she respects him. You know, she listens to she's interested about the story he's reading and she goes and comforts him and. I think honestly that was the build up for which was my connecting point was when he nails the role of the of the villain as far as in Lancer. Um then she comes up to him and gives him that like, hey, that was the best acting I've ever seen and it's like it comes full circle for him. It's like, wow, like I achieved something. Like I may not win an award for this, I may not like may not get a job for this, but I did put a smile and I impressed somebody, you know, and they and that means a lot to him as an actor. When you're able to do what you do, when you're able to craft these performances and be somebody you're not, and then you have someone come up to you and say, that was the best thing I ever seen. It's, it's like a chef kiss. It's like, you can go ahead and die right now and go to heaven off of that. And she was, she was great. She was just another one of the supporting characters that has like, she's, she has a brief role, but she makes a mark that you'll remember after the credits. For sure. She's a character. I think that. As you mentioned, Aaron represents New Hollywood, but I would say if we're going to get a little bit more meta, I think she represents the current audience that likes the summer blockbusters and that feels like they know everything. She's more, um, she's more courteous about it. Like she's very respectful of, of him, but I think she represents kind of the, here's how we're doing it now. And, you know, if you can be a part of that, fantastic. But if not, that's okay. I'm going to keep doing my acting chops and I'm going to keep learning my own way. So juxtaposed against the other scene, I think in some ways it's Quentin Tarantino saying you got to look back in order to move forward, in order to respect what you're seeing now, look back and see where it all started. And I think that she kind of encapsulates that in a way that isn't mean spirited. She is confident. That's for sure. But she's also curious, which I think is very cool. And I think that's how we should be as as film critics, as movie lovers, is we should be able to respect those things that came before us from the 50s and 60s and 70s. Movies that we don't necessarily connect with because they're not our time period. But even for the casual film goer, I think it's important to be able to represent her in a way where we say, I like what I like. But I'm going to look back at these and see kind of where the roots started from. And so I think she encapsulated that really well. Yeah. And then there is some more really good, like, 
detailed type stuff in the production here that I gotta I gotta call call out with regards to her performance because I, I went looking her up because I just was so mesmerized by all the scenes with her. I just thought they were perfect. Maybe it's because I was so shocked to see this sweet little child character in a Tarantino film um, having such an impact. But when one of the things I found out was there's this great line that she gives Rick about how Walt Disney is her favorite and that she thinks he's an absolute genius, right? Fun fact, Julia Butter's dad's name is Darren, and he just happens to be an animator who works for Disney and specifically worked on Tangled, which is her favorite film, and also Frozen. So I thought that was really neat uh, to learn, and clearly, again, a Tarantino-specific kind of detail in there related to um, the actress. Found out that there were a couple moments on set where actors just really embraced her. One, she was uh, writing a Western novel herself. And at one point during one of the filming sessions, a wind hit the set and blew all of her pages everywhere. And Luke Perry, rest in peace, he he ended up dying um, earlier this year in March unexpectedly. Uh, so before the film release, but he was in the movie and he went running around and like picking up all the pages of her novel, put them all back together in specific page order and then brought them to her. Um, they really took care of her on set. Burt Reynolds uh, also passed away, but was initially going to be part of the film, um, said he absolutely loved working with her and her time with Leo, she said was really special. Um, she said that he welcomed her and her mother to his home. He worked on with her one-on-one -on -one and gave her advice. It's interesting because you mentioned earlier, Coles, about her facial expressions and how much acting uh, she was able to do in that way. And DiCaprio actually gave her specific tips about how to emote differently with facial expressions and with her demeanor so that she could do more with her performance. Those are things she specifically learned from him directly. And she said that he also was really, really concerned about her because of the scene where he has to throw her on the ground. She said he was incredibly anxious about it. He hated doing it. And every time he would do it, he would say, I'm going to ask you every time if you're okay, because I would never forgive myself if I hurt my little princess. I just, I mean, I know that's not like thematic or whatever, but like hearing those stories just elevates the actual actors, in my opinion, and it makes their performance even more meaningful for me personally. And I, I thought it was really sweet. Um, she also has not fully seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because she's 10 and it's rated R. And her mom won't let her watch the ending, which so basically, Patrick, you and Julia are in the same boat come future viewings of this film. <laughs> Until she turns like 13 and then mom's like, whatever. <laughs> it's just a movie. <laughs> She's also now pen pals with Tarantino, I found out. I guess they, she didn't even know who he was when she got this role, and which is good because she's 10. Um, but now they're like best buddies and they write each other letters all the time. It's so gonna, sweet. I don't know. I just love it. That's going to become your excuse for everything because she's 10. Like, this, <laughs> yeah. is why, this is why something doesn't happen in Aaron's life because she's 10. <laughs> Leo told her she was so amazing. She was probably going to be the next Meryl Streep. And she, she was recounting this and saying how she got, she was simultaneously like incredibly honored that he would say that, but also incredibly mad because 
there's no way in heck she could ever live up to that. <laughs> well, guys, let's go ahead and transition into our connecting points at this time. So, Coles, I'm going to let you go first, primarily because Patrick and I have the same one. So we'll uh, jointly tackle that one together. But w- where did you land? I think you mentioned it just a second ago. It had something to do with Trudy, I believe. Yes, um, Rick and Trudy's scene in the show Lancer. I felt that this scene was very, very symbolic of what Tarantino was trying to get at with this film. You know, not just, it's not just a celebration of or homage to old Hollywood, but it's also a celebration of being an actor and being able to have these performances that touch people's souls. Like for me, as a film goer, nothing better is that when you can go to a film and you can connect with a character. There's nothing, be- there's nothing better feeling than that. Cause then you're able to jump into the shoes of somebody for at least a couple of hours and get to see the world from a different viewpoint, which helps you keep a lot of things open minded. So for me, when Rick, you know, at first Rick is, he's kind of nailing the scene, but there's like lines he's not forgetting. And then he goes to his trailer and he's like kicking stuff around. He's frustrated. He's like, you're like, you practice your lines, and then you go out there and you pretend like you don't know him, and then he's like, you know, you know what? I'm going to stop drinking. Then he starts drinking again. You know, he's having this doubt, and then he looks himself in the mirror, and he's like, okay, you're going to get this right, and if you don't, your brains are going to be all over, like, the floor. It's like, it's like he's dedicated enough. Like, it comes from a great place. You know, it's a very humorous scene, but it's coming from a, a place of dedication. It's coming from a place of being passionate about your craft not worrying about the money just worried about putting on performance that you can feel happy about and that you can touch other people with i mean he's playing a villain in like a, a btv show so it might not get farther than just like just that moment but it's special to him it's a very unique and special moment to him and it felt good seeing him get that moment of triumph because earlier in the film we see him crying and He's not sure where his career is going to go. He's not sure if he's going to be able to continue to live this lifestyle. He's going to be able to continue to support himself doing what he loves. But in this scene, he gets that feeling like, hey, I still got something. I'm still useful. I can still go out and do films and I can be able to wow people with this performance. And they showed the scene in the trailer and it had a funny connotation to it. But for me, when it's in the final film. I just kind of I just kind of sat there and did like a silent clap. You know, it, I didn't feel it was like very funny. I was just like, wow, like he's he was very, very, very dedicated. He's really serious about what he does. And he wants to continue having this career. He just has he just wants to get a bigger platform to be able to show everybody what he could do. But this is where it starts right here, you know, with um, moments like this and. You know, after that, then we see him starting to get more opportunities. And then he goes to Italy and then he has more films lined up in the future for himself. So this moment for me was the big, big reason that I think I'm so in love with this film and why it means more to me than most of Tarantino's other projects. Because like you said before, Aaron, it's filmed with a tender, loving care that I didn't expect to see and also a respect to the art form of being in the entertainment industry. Absolutely, man. I mean, this whole, everything on the Lancer set is, is it's excellent. I mean, it is top tier movie making magic at its best. It is incredible. It is incredible actors putting on incredible performances and it is funny. It's awesome and exciting to watch. It's, it's interesting and informative and you can learn a lot about what's going on behind the scenes. I love that camera shot. When they reset, when he's like, let's do it again, let's do it again, and the director says, no, 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 and and finally he has to, the way the camera moves and tracks backwards to reset 
as it was going to come around. I, I thought that was like I was captivated by that. And then that moment with Trudy after the very end when she comes up to him and she's like, that was the best acting I've ever seen. Like, it's just again, that was one of the moments where I was like getting teary. Um, It was really moving for me. Well, Patrick. You have our joint connecting point, so I'm going to let you kick it off and uh, start us there. Well, let me just say for the record that Kalesa's connecting point was my runner-up. So I feel privileged knowing that both my connecting points, in a sense, made this podcast. Hey, yeah. All right, my connecting point was the moment that Sharon Tate watches herself and the audience's reaction to her performance inside the movie theater. And this is for two reasons. First... I have had a moment like this uh, a couple of years ago when we did our short film for the 48 hour film project movie that I was really proud of. I was for 48 hours, you're going to get what you get, but to have jokes that were written and moments that were supposed to be funny, get huge laughs, get people clapping. I was afraid to turn around because the theater was not that dark (laughs) But to hear the elation of people laughing at moments when they're supposed to and then just having a fantastic time, responding to it in a way, I felt that way before. And I imagine that when you have a director like Quentin Tarantino or anybody get to see that reaction sitting in the audience, not knowing that you're there, it's breathtaking. It's absolutely incredible because you feel completely validated that the part you played in this story or the part you played in this movie is being applauded it's being lauded in a way that you wouldn't expect because these people don't know she's there and so they're genuinely reacting to the movie not saying oh hey Sharon Tate's here we better clap at these points when she gets in and It goes back to what I mentioned earlier about how Margot Robbie does things without talking. The the quote that I pulled about her says, creating Tate almost as a physical expression of joy and promise rather than filling her with Tarantino-style dialogue was a respectful approach to a real woman who can't speak to what she would have said. Reading that quote after seeing the movie and attaching it to that scene makes complete sense. Because she didn't say a word. I actually love the th- the part where she is reenacting the choreography and she's flashing back to her choreographed stuff with Bruce Lee getting getting trained in that. There's a smile on her face. Like she's having a good time with that. And you see the people behind her just going, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I just I loved feeling that with her. I loved being able to experience this validation that she had as an actress. And I think that's a small moment in a movie that appropriately enough is not about her to give her those little tributes. The other tribute being obviously her survival at the end of all this. But this moment I think was Quentin Tarantino saying, this is the Sharon Tate. I remember this is the approachable one. The one who was down to earth, the one who would get a picture taken for a fan or who would go buy a first edition book for someone or who would pick up a hitchhiker things that that made her not a movie star but a person and at the same time having those accolades of 
being a movie star. Yeah, I mean, it, same for me. Um, all those reasons. I wouldn't say it's necessarily him remembering her as she was to him, so much as how he wants us to remember her Fair going enough. forward. He, he had a quote where he said, in the case of Sharon, I thought there was something kind of wonderful about this person who lived, who has been defined by the tragedy of her death, like I was saying earlier. She's living her life, which is what, in reality, she didn't get a chance to do. We're watching her do that. And I love the quote that you shared from Margot as well. Uh, this whole controversy uh, is so indicative of the way the world is today, where we just hone in, people hone in on one little aspect of a movie or something and take this plant, this flag on that as this major problematic thing, you know, like the fact that she doesn't have very many speaking lines and without giving it any thought, without actually digging into or finding out why the director or the actress uh, portrayed the character that way. It's just immediately judging something because it's not equal to what we would imagine it. We want it in our minds. When in reality, when you step back and you really look at this performance and what Tarantino did with her arc throughout the film, it makes perfect sense and it becomes super respectful. And so, yeah, man, that moment where she's sitting there and watching herself on the screen really had me. I mean, knowing what is going to befall her, and I think, to some extent, knowing what we expect to see befall her in the film made that really impactful. And I think what his point is, is not just even Sharon, but it's to make you think about all the people that lose their life senselessly, right? Everybody has a life. And she wasn't a movie star. She was like, in the back of the poster and no one remembered who she was the you know she had to explain it and prove it to the people at the movie theater that were there that were working there right she had to be like no like this is me on the picture that's not the point like to her she was a movie star to her she was proud you know it's like it would be like patrick you trying to explain that you're a director and showing your short film right and nobody's like i don't know what you're talking about i've never seen that and you'd be like well let me show it to you right and then, like, I imagined, I actually imagined, like, if you were, like, sitting there watching your short film at the festival, right, when it's, like, being screened for everybody for voting purposes or whatever, like, I imagine that that would feel very similar, right, watching that take place, knowing you were in that performance. Uh, so, yeah, it was super touching. I think it was the most impactful thing we got with Sharon the whole time, and I was just really glad that that scene existed because it cemented everything about her inclusion in this film and it made it why I think she needed to be in the film and why it works to do the alternate history mingling there. So I loved it very much. So very fun. Yeah. And that's a wrap for this episode of feeling film. Uh, we are in the midst of director battle month and the first of our four finalists has been picked. So later this week we will be uh, previewing not previewing. We will be actually talking about uh, psycho which is uh, very exciting for us. And then we're going to jump into the theater with Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson discussing the first of hopefully many Fast and Furious spinoffs, Hobbs and Shaw. So you don't want to miss that. Aaron Kales, thank you guys for a fantastic conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. 
These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.